Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, October 25th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So, Indre, we are not, strictly speaking, a political show, but that doesn't mean we can't do a show about politics, as long as there's science mixed in there somewhere, and in this case there is, because there's emotion in politics, there's psychology in politics, and our guest this week is literally able to put the politicians who are behind all the recent upheaval in the United States on the couch, which is probably where they belong, and psychoanalyze them. He's Jonathan Haidt. He's a professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU, and he's author of last year's bestseller, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by politics and religion. And here's a little part of what he had to say to me. It's just hard for you to understand the moral motives of your enemy, and it's so much easier uh, to listen to, you know, listen to your favorite talk radio station, which gives you all the moral ammunition you need to damn them to hell. You know, Chris, I think it's a little sad that we've gotten to a point in this country where someone with a different political view is considered the enemy rather than a partner or a friend, you know, the us versus them mentality. But that's exactly where we find ourselves. Yeah, I mean, the the emotions are intense, and I think that the word hate is sometimes accurate to describe how people on the left and the right feel towards each other, uh, especially during the shutdown. I think it definitely got that intense. So um, so getting back from there, whoa, going to be a difficult thing. But um, but that's we have to understand the kind of science he's talking about in order to have any hope of doing that. Well, I'm looking forward to the interview. But first, I want to talk to you about a study that I came across this week that was published in the journal Current Biology. And um, I think you'll find it somewhat apropos of today's topic. So did you know that marmosets, they're like a type of tiny primate, a monkey, um, are actually pretty good conversationalists? In fact, no, they're, they're quite polite compared to many of my dinner party guests recently. They don't just talk over one another like we're prone to do, but they actually exchange calls with other marmosets and they take turns politely waiting for their conversation partner to finish a thought before responding. Well, that's heartwarming. So they're actually better than U.S. politicians, I guess. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the the problem is, of course, we don't understand what they're saying. So it's entirely possible that their conversations are just as polarized. You know, that that they don't they don't uh, they don't make a lot of sense to each other, or they don't take into account what the other marmoset is saying. But what's really interesting about this study is that biologists are starting to suspect that maybe this type of communication represents the link between communication just by gesture or body language. And the evolution of language, which, you know, is, is such a human thing. Um, so it might represent this missing link in our evolution about how communication can go from just being gestural to the complicated, coordinated language system of our own species. Right. It certainly, I was reading the, at least descriptions of the research, and it sounded like they were clearly finding something different than the, you know, what a frog does or what insects do, which is they all call at the same time in sync. I guess that's serving a very different purpose than having an exchange. Yeah, it's not like singing in a choir, you know, where you're 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 calling and then pe- then other animals from your species join you. And um, here, it really does seem as though they are having exchanges that you know maybe are meaningful. Maybe the information that they are exchanging uh, is unique to each conversation. Who knows? Right. Well, we could, you know, populate a Congress with them and see how they do probably pretty well. <laughs> Maybe they'll come out with all the works of Shakespeare or something like that. <laughs> so, so Indre, this week, uh, unfortunately, I have a less heartwarming story. We had an example of something that scientists hate that happens to them with some regularity, which is one researcher's work gets completely misunderstood by a media that doesn't understand science or statistics. Meanwhile, the same media misunderstanding it thinks it's awesome and funny and takes it viral. And so the misunderstanding is broadcast very widely. It's a communications nightmare. Uh, And it happened to last week's guest, one of last week's guests. This is Dan Kahan. I'll just tell you the story quickly. He likes to play with data on his blog and he blogs about it. And he found this teeny tiny relationship between being a member of the Tea Party and scoring high on a test of science comprehension. And you will understand this because you understand statistics. Khan called the relationship trivially small. The correlation was 0.05. That's about as close to no correlation <laughs> as you get. But he blogged. He said he was surprised to find even this. And what happened? It goes from Politico to all over the conservative media. Everyone saying, look, the Tea Party loves science. It's way better at science than, you know, and, and off it goes. And here's a clip of this getting to the Glenn Beck show. A university professor that is surprised because we're all rubes. We're mm-hmm. all idiots. Stupid. We're mm-hmm. all stupid. We've never read a book before in our life, and we mm-hmm. certainly would much rather um, uh, look for miracles that have nothing to do with the miracle of science. We just believe that only our magic sky god can do anything, and <laughs> yes. medicine should all be chased out because it's witchcraft. Right. Got it. <laughs> so they were laughing. They found this very funny, but the last laugh was on them because they... They misunderstood the statistics, and they claimed it was a strong correlation between between being a Tea Party member and understanding science. It was nothing, nothing of the sort. This is a complete non-story. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think I hate to say it, but there would be a lot of naysayers in science that would say this is why scientists shouldn't blog, um, and this is why we have peer review. But you know, I think they're wrong. I think that if you read Kahan's post, it's he definitely has a lot of caveats in there, and it really it is interesting to watch the process of science as it unfolds. Um, uh, but you're exactly right. I mean, this R value we should state is an R value of 0.05, which is a correlation, um, and it also has a P value or the probability uh, that it was just 
found by chance, which also happens to be 0.05, which in a lot of scientific studies is, is statistically significant if you only do one comparison. But without getting too technical, you know, he's just data mining here and this correlation wouldn't pass peer review. Um, so it's not like the finding that he's got, you know, is, 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 is something really real um, that we know for sure. And he'd be the first one to admit that. Right, and the actual meaningful correlations are at least slightly more meaningful oh, uh, in five, the study. Yeah, five yeah. times bigger. You know, the, the other R values that he's talking about are 0. 0.26, 0. 0.31, and higher. Right, and know. that's with education. So education makes you, no, no duh, right? This is a big shock. So g- college education and then religiosity is negative with science understanding at 0.26, which is something that uh, we are not too surprised to find. And he also finds the same correlation between, you know, liberalism and conservatism going the other way, right? So the more liberal you are on that particular scale, conserve repub, I think that he calls it, um, the better your science comprehension. So, you know, that goes totally against this idea that if you think of Tea Partiers as being the most conservative, um, and we should also note that, you know, just for those who are interested in the technical details, you know, the, the sample of Tea Partiers is, is much smaller than what he's comparing them to. So there are 430 people who said they were Tea Partiers compared to 1,886 who said they weren't. So this effect might be driven entirely by the difference in sample size. That is, when you have a bigger group, you have more outliers, more individuals in the extremes. And so perhaps driving the science comprehension down in the bigger group. But, you know, regardless, it's so trivial that that it really is just, you know, it's 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 meaningless. But tempest in a teapot. (laughs) But what I found really interesting, though, is that Beck and others who, you know, go so far to dismiss science a lot of the time, you know, in favor of hand waving and other arguments. You know, why would they trust this finding? You know, why would they why would it be something that, you know, gets them going? It's it's self-affirming to them to find some liberal researchers pat them on the back. Uh, The irony is just it's just dripping in irony because they don't understand the research. <laughs> it's sure. painful. It's completely painful. But it also is a lesson here for, for scientists. I mean, this stuff happens again and again. Don't trust the media to understand your statistics. Just a warning. All right, we don't, that's not the media that we have. I'm sorry. So true. So true. And also, I should say that, you know, there, one of the things I found really disturbing about some of the Glenn Beck comments was how he was saying, oh, you know, now Yale is going to fire or take tenure away from Dan Kahan because, you know, it's this liberal institution that doesn't want to hear any of this. And, you know, that's really sad because it's just not the case. You know, if this was a real effect, he would be the first one to publish it. And, you know, people would jump all over it because it's different from, you know, what we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. I, it just I just don't think it's a real effect. Yeah, that that was that was actually the sad part is that Beck goes on to argue, well, this liberal found something that goes against what all the liberals think, so they'll probably fire him. I mean, that's again shows he doesn't understand science, right? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. the truth is, it probably won't get published because it's not yeah. a real effect. It's no big so, deal. He's just blogging it. Yeah, right. So. so Glenn Beck will be justified in saying, well, this is never going to see the light of day. It's not going to see the light of day. Okay, well, that was this one was a wild one. Okay, so with that, uh, let's take a short break, and we will be right back for our interview with Jonathan Haidt of NYU and the author of The Righteous Mind. Jonathan Haidt, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to be talking to you. So right now, very few people in America are happy with what we just went through, the shutdown, the debt ceiling brinksmanship, and it's politically pretty bad uh, for the Tea Party and the Republican Party based on polls. But we want to have you 
kind of help us understand how the Tea Party and to some extent the Republican Party, how they could still do what they did and why this makes sense to them. So to start out, maybe give us some background on the Moral Foundation's approach to politics and and then tell us how it relates. Mm-hmm, sure. Uh, so I study moral psychology and, and uh, I've always looked at how morality varies across cultures. I did a lot of work in India and Brazil. Um, and in the late 90s, I began to notice that uh, uh, morality between the left and the right was becoming like two different nations with their own histories, their own f- sets of facts, their own values, and their own beliefs in science. And so I uh, converted my research over uh, trying to understand the moral worlds of left and right. And honestly, I did it, especially after the 2004 election, to help the Democrats, because I just couldn't believe that the Democrats had lost twice to George Bush. And uh, uh, in the process of doing that, I actually came to see uh, that the conservatives are, I think, actually right about some things from a social science perspective, or at very least, they're morally motivated. They're no more insane than people on the left. Um, so uh, I think it, it does help to to look at politics, not just as self-interest. I mean, we're so cynical and used to thinking about self-interest. Um, but when people come together to try to change the government, change the policy, um, it usually is in pursuit of a, of a deeply held uh, a moral passion. Uh, we, and we can talk about what the passions are on the left and right, but that's the general, general perspective. Let's talk. Let's let's get the passions on the left and right. And also, I think it's important for our listeners to know that you ultimately think, if I'm if I'm not wrong, that these emotions exist in us for reasons that are ultimately uh, evolutionary. So politics is a byproduct of something more primal, I guess. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's right. So the, the metaphor I use is is that everybody on Earth has the same five taste buds on their tongue. They're given to us by evolution to guide us to foods that were good for our ancestors. Uh, but boy, do our cuisines differ. And it's the same with morality. Everybody, uh, I believe, has the same six or seven or eight uh, moral foundations in their minds. They're like the taste buds of the moral sense. Things like fairness, compassion, loyalty, authority, sanctity. Um, But boy, do the moralities that we build differ. So one of the basic principles of moral psychology um, is that morality binds and blinds. When people uh, circle around some sacred values, uh, they then can trust each other, but it blinds them to the motives of the other side. Um, the left in the United States, really the new left in the 60s and 70s, focused on race and gender issues. That's what became sacred to them. And, you know, I think they, there was some bad thinking and some bad science thinking on race and gender issues. Um, the right, uh, well, we had the, we had the older culture war, which was around uh, religious issues and protecting the flag and, and all that stuff, um, uh, you know, the, sort of the older culture war in the 90s, uh, focusing on gender issues and abortion. With the Tea Party, it's new. It, it's not about it, it's not about the, those old social issues. It's about issues of uh, fairness, liberty, taxes, and government. Um, we have a kind of a new culture war since the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I want to get more to the Tea Party, but just some more things about how morality drives you to behave if you feel strongly. I mean. I'm, it affects your willingness to compromise, right? And it affects what you'll do to re- to achieve an end that you consider to be just. Absolutely. And there's a couple of ways to think about this. Um, so one is the, uh, there's a very important concept called procedural fairness. And uh, that's the sense that proper procedures are being followed. The system is, is, is giving me at least a fair hearing. Um, and this is, uh, this is, it helps explain, I think, a lot of the feelings of the Tea Party uh, and also of Occupy Wall Street. I mean, both, you know, there's a lot of crony capitalism, there's a lot of corruption in this country, 
Um, and just as the left thought that the election of George Bush was illegitimate and that justified uh, quite a lot of contempt and disrespect and disregard, well, on the right, they, a lot of them think that the election of Obama was illegitimate, either that he's not really a citizen or uh, the Democrats use dirty tricks or uh, for whatever reason. But it's crucial, especially for understanding the rage against Obamacare, um, because it, it did use unusual parliamentary maneuvers to get it through. Now, you know, when your side uses unusual parliamentary maneuvers that are not illegal, you think, well, look, that's the game. But when the other side does it, you think this is an outrage. And if they violate procedural fairness, that means you don't have to respect a fair procedure. You can do unusual things like threaten to shut down the government. So how do we does, is it fair to say that politicians today, many of them just hate each other? I mean, Richard Durbin just posted on Facebook. Uh, he accused one House Republican leader in negotiations of saying directly to President Obama, quote, I cannot even stand to look at you. This is a anecdote. Uh, who knows whether anyone will name who supposedly said this or whether it was said, but I mean, that's contempt. Absolutely. And this is, this is new, um, at least the willingness to express it. And partly this is a cultural change. Uh, most of us uh, who are under 50 today um, are not as respectful of uh, in public or towards our elders as people were 50 years ago. In fact, let me read you two quotes from Republicans separated by about 50 years. Uh, in 1961, John Wayne was asked what he thought of the election of uh, John Kennedy, and he said, quote, I may not have voted for him, but he's my president, and I hope he does a good job. Wow. Now, that's the voice of, of somebody who remembers World War II. That's the voice of the generation, the greatest generation, which is the best generation we've had, possibly since the founders, uh, in, ter- in their ability to to put the, the interests of the nation first, to come together to pursue national needs. Uh, about 50 years later, uh, Rush Limbaugh um, is asked, uh, soon after the election of Obama, uh, some radio station or newspaper asked a lot of people to contribute, uh, contribute in up to 40 words or 80 words or something, uh, their hopes for President Obama. Uh, uh, Rush Limbaugh refuses to do it, and he says on his radio program, I don't need 80 words, I only need four. I hope he fails. Uh, that's about as different as can be. Um, the rage on the Republican side is stronger. The Republicans have gotten much more extreme than the Democrats have. Um, but yeah, this, con- this willingness to show contempt for the president, this is new and very disturbing to me. So another, but it's important to understand, I guess, for liberals, uh, that the, you know, they, they, pro- they think their opponents are immoral and their opponents think they're immoral. Yes. Both are moral. It's just your meaning of moral is not uh, ethical. <laughs> it's, it's moral in the sense of having emotions. Well, that's right. It's, it, both sides are morally motivated. Um, both sides, you know, the alternative, so what, what's commonly said on the left, you know, I mean, I hated Reagan when he was president, and I hated George W. Bush when he was president. And, and on, you know, on the left, people tend to dismiss the other side as being motivated by greed, you know, uh, just business interests motivated by money, or else racism. Um, and, and I think that's not really fair. There, there are a lot of, 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 I think, legitimate moral concerns um, that it's hard for, it's just hard for you to understand the moral motives of your enemy, and it's so much easier uh, to listen to, you know, listen to your favorite talk radio station, which gives you all the moral ammunition you need to damn them to hell. So let's talk about some actually some of the substance of what left-right morality is. One finding that I, I saw you tweeted, uh, which was using your paradigm, 
which is that Republicans they were who were low on the Harm Care Foundation, you tell us what this is, or their districts were, people in their districts were, were more likely to support the shutdown. What is, right. I mean, what, what does that mean? Yeah. So uh, my colleagues and I have developed this theory, which we call moral foundations theory, and it's about what those taste buds are. And what we find is that uh, the first of the six major taste buds, sort of care, compassion, you know, how much, uh, you know, you see some kids are just really upset if they see a dog suffering or, or, you know, cruelty to an animal, they get really upset. Other kids are less moved by that. Uh, The kids who are really moved by it are more likely than average to grow up to be liberals. It's not that there's, uh, there's a gene for being a liberal. But um, liberal morality is more focused on care and compassion. And, and a lot of photographs I took at Occupy Wall Street of the signs there are things like that. Um, uh, and if you're talking about health care in this country, and it's just terrible that uh, you know, people, well, poor people have, uh, have uh, Medicaid, but so many people, working, you know, working single moms, working people, don't have medical coverage. It's, it's horrible. And if compassion is the center of your morality, that becomes an urgent national priority. Um, whereas the, so the second foundation, however, is fairness. And this is kind of complicated, uh, but the bottom line is that fairness, you should really think about it as proportionality. Are you taking out in proportion to what you're putting in? And for those who remember that famous exchange uh, where um, Ron Paul was asked by Wolf Blitzer, uh, basically he was asked the Ant and the Grasshopper story. You know, suppose a young guy doesn't have health insurance and thinks, well, why should I be? Why should I pay? I'm young and healthy. Uh, so he chooses not to get health insurance. Then he gets an accident. He's in a coma. Um, you know, well, who should pay? Uh, should we just let him die? And a couple of people in the audience say, yeah. Okay, now. So on the left, that is the height of cruelty. That is so immoral. That is a lack of compassion. If that's your main moral foundation, then these people are monsters. But on the right, it's not that they don't have compassion, but it's that their morality is not based on compassion. Their morality is based much more on a sense of who's cheating, who's slacking. And the story as Wolf Blitzer presented, it was the ant and the grasshopper. It was this guy decides to not pay and then he needs it. Well, fairness would demand that he do be left to die, that he do pay the costs of his own irresponsibility. Uh, and that's really the heart of the battle nowadays between a notion of personal responsibility where government should not bail people out and a notion of compassion where government is essential to have a humane society. As I understand it, though, the chief moral foundation of the Tea Party is also, well, maybe one of the chief ones is involves liberty, right? It involves freedom. I don't know if that's if they see that as the yes. same thing. So this is where it, that's right. This is where it gets really interesting that the Tea Party began as a, as a very libertarian protest. Um, originally, actually, about, well, it was about the bailouts under George Bush initially, and then under Obama. And the libertari- so libertarian has been an alliance between libertarians and social conservatives, but it's always been mostly social conservatives. And I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago, when it, soon after it came out. After reading a lot of Tea Party literature, um, it seemed to me that while the, some of the spokesmen for the movement or the, some, some of, you know, it, of course, there are many sincere libertarians in it, but the bulk of the complaints and concerns were not about liberty. They were about proportionality. They were about fairness, slackers, cheaters, free riders, punishing those who were. So if you look at the initial call um, by, uh, let's see, what was his name on CNBC, the guy who, uh, Santelli, Rick Santelli, um, the text of what he said, it was basically, how many of you people want to pay your neighbor's mortgage who built an extra bathroom and can't afford it now? Um, the government is encouraging irresponsibility. That was the gist of it. Um, so I, uh, my analysis is that the Tea Party really wants karma. 
They want the law of karma. You know, the Indian law of karma, which says that if you do something bad, something bad will happen to you. If you do something good, something good will happen to you. And if the government interferes and breaks that link, it is evil. That, I think, is much of the passion of the Tea Party. Okay, so, so, but would you call that, you know, liberty or would you call it fairness or is it? Fairness. It's fairness. Okay. I don't think the Tea Party, so you can't generalize about the Tea Party in that it's, it's a mixture of several movements and the ratio of libertarians and conservatives has shifted in a, uh, several times back and forth since the movement began. Um, but the bulk, of the, move, the bulk of the movement is social conservatives and for them, I actually have some data on this from tea, surveys of Tea Partiers, um, concerns about proportionality loom larger than concerns about liberty. Oh, I see. Because you've also done research on libertarians, where you know they are they have a particular morality which is all about all about liberty. That's right. So libertarian psychology is really interesting. You know, we all focus on left versus right as though they're just liberals and conservatives, and libertarians are always saying, "Hey, you know, we're not either. We're not conservatives," um, and that's really true. Libertarians. What what my group found, we we collected a lot of data at yourmorals.org. Um, we have, I think, the best data set ever on libertarian psychology because we have about 15 to 20,000 libertarians as well as many more liberals and conservatives. And what we find is that libertarians are the smartest people out there. They are the most rational, the most clear thinking, the least emotional. Um, and that includes emotions such as vengefulness. Um, so I'll just give you um, so an example on the question such as, uh, I believe in the motto, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, liberals and conservatives really, really disagree on that. Uh, conser- that's a, that's a, a, a proportionality item. Conservatives uh, really endorse this sort of punitive um, uh, notion of fairness. Uh, libertarians aren't like that. They're not really punitive and vengeful. They, libertarians really make uh, liberty sacred, and they're willing to trade off all other moral concerns. I mean, they're really consistent, whereas liberals and conservatives, it's easy to find their inconsistencies. Right, and and so what's amazing, I've I've seen this data, and the libertarians also don't share with the conservatives. Conservatives have this sense of disgust. Libertarians don't really share that feeling. Exactly, that's right. Libertarians are the least emotional. Um, So if you look at uh, you know attitudes about um, uh, well all the bioethical issues, euthanasia, abortion, stem cell research, things that are where the opposition. So for the perfect purposes. So if your morality is based on compassion. Well, medical research that could, that could cure diseases and reduce human suffering, of course we should do it. But if you're a social conservative, you have the idea that there are certain things that are sacred and that the body is sacred and where life is a gift from God and we shouldn't do it just because the, the payoff will be better than the cost. Libertarians are just like liberals on those issues. Libertarians are the lowest out there on the sense of disgust and, and personal sanctity and purity. But there's just one thing that's a little odd about this, if I may say. It's that if I understand your data right, they're also overwhelmingly male, so they're the only big ideological group that has this gender disparity Correct. that's so, Correct. so large. That's right. I mean, yeah, what so does that it, mean? Well, I think what it means is this, that um, so we all start off in, in utero after conception. Or we all start off as girls. Our bodies are girls. Our brains are girl brains. Uh, and then if there's a Y chromosome present, you get a little burst of testosterone around the eighth to 10th week of gestation. And that changes over the brain and the body to the male pattern. And what some researchers have found, so researchers who study autism, uh, find that um, the testosterone changes the, changes the brain to the male pattern. It makes it less compassionate, uh, less empathetic, but better at systemizing, better at thinking about complex systems. And uh, what we find is that libertarians of, of both sexes, if you just look at libertarian men, 
they have the most masculine thinking style compared to liberals and conservatives. If you look at just at women, libertarian women have a more masculine thinking style. Um, so I do think, I don't, I don't want to be reductionist and determinist here and say it's all in your genes, but at least that starts the ball rolling. And so certain people just find libertarian ideology or, or, or uh, uh, libertarian um, organizations more resonant. They, they fit more with their internal feelings. But it's the same for liberals and conservatives. We all respond to ideologies based on how they feel to us, and we have different feelings. So what does, how does all this relate to what everybody's lamenting, which is the extreme polarization? I mean, clearly emotional, emotions polarize us, but we're more polarized than before. So how do you give the account of polarization in relation to your research? Oh, our long and sad national story. The, I mean, the way I think about it is this, that political parties have always been agglomerations of interest groups. So be they regions or industries, you know, back to the time of the founding fathers, uh, you know, there were federalists and anti-federalists. And those were, those were mostly based on, you know, what regions would gain or lose and what industries. And that's what politics is often about, is interests and often financial interests. Well, beginning in the 1960s, we get this gigantic change going on in America and elsewhere. That you get uh, uh, politics reorienting itself uh, around race and gender issues, around um, urban. And so the Democratic Party becomes much more uh, an urban party, um, whereas the Democratic Party was traditionally the rural, agrarian, and southern party. So you and get religious. Passive, uh, that, that's <laughs> a, certainly, that's right. Uh, more religious, at least. Yeah. And so since the 60s, we've had this gigantic sort where while there used to be conservative Southern Democrats because Lincoln was a Republican, um, once Johnson signs the Civil Rights Act and things get set in motion, you get this purification of the parties. So by the 90s, from the, between the 60s and the 90s, um, all the liberals now shift over into the Democratic Party, all the conservatives into the Republican Party. So for the first time in our history, the parties are not agglomerations of interest groups and financial or, or material interest groups. They're agglomerations of personality styles and lifestyles. And this is really dangerous because if it's just that you and I have different interests, that doesn't mean I'm going to hate you. It just means that we got to negotiate and, you know, I want to win, but we, we, got, we can negotiate. If it's now that you people on the other side, you're really different from me. You live in a different way. You pray in a different way. You eat different foods than I do. Um, it's much easier to hate those people. Uh, and that's where we are. Maybe this explains the proliferation of ideological cookbooks. <laughs> oh, I've heard about these. So what, well, no, there's like the Romney cookbook and things like that. I'm just joking, but there actually are cookbooks that politicians do. Well, maybe they can come up with a recipe for uh, for a, a little bit, a little bit more progress and coherence. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the the morality of the Democrats in the latest struggle. One thing that they did. Uh, was that they completely unified themselves. They saw the other side's behavior as hostage-taking. They would not negotiate until the hostage was released. What is what is what binds them together in that situation? Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I think they played that, they played that very well. So the, when you look at the graph of what's happened to the parties uh, since the 1960s, you see that the Democrats, uh, the, the number of, of centrists has shrunk a bit. The number of conservative Democrats has shrunk a bit. Uh, but it's not that dramatic. And the Democratic Party, certainly in Congress, is a mix of sort of centrists, uh, you know, moderately liberal and very liberal people. Whereas the Republicans went from being overwhelmingly centrist in the, in the 50s and 60s to having almost no centrist. Now it's almost all people on the far right. So the 
Republican Party has really, really changed. Um, the Democrats are not all that ideologically coherent, but um, they've been through this game before with Republicans. And Obama did negotiate uh, over the debt ceiling limit uh, the first time around when you know he he the Republicans had just won an election; they were much stronger, um, and it turned out really badly for the Democrats. So they they played poker much more skillfully this time. I wouldn't say it's that they were bound together ideologically. Um, I would say they saw what happened last time. They knew that the polling was going to support them. They knew that this was going to be a suicide mission for the Republicans, and they were right. So let's talk about the Republicans now because they're sort of – they have a schism. It's been widely remarked upon. You tweeted recently, you hope the Republican Party breaks up and new party forms focused on growth, not austerity. So what – you know, if it breaks up, it's going to be different moralities in the party. What would they Absolutely. be? Absolutely. Yeah. So – um, so a really helpful – so anybody on the left who's trying to understand what the heck is going on with the uh, Republicans um, should read work by Karen Stenner, a political scientist, who uh, points out from her analyses there's three different kinds of people who make up – who vote Republican. There are the, the laissez-faire conservatives who are more like libertarians. They're not conservative at all. They, they value markets perfectly respectable. They're perfectly you – know, they're very good people in democracy. They value freedom. Then uh, there are the – uh, the Burkean conservatives, the ones who value, uh, who are afraid of change or are cautious about change, um, they also can be um, very good. They're also very good uh, uh, friends of democracy because in America, what you're trying to preserve is you know, the, the world's greatest democracy, um, or so we think of ourselves. And then the third group is the authoritarians. They're the ones who are the problem for democracy. The authoritarians are the ones who really fear moral incoherence. They fear the group coming apart. They're the ones who are really threatened by immigration um, and diversity. And when they think that America is coming apart, they get even more racist. And so this is what gives the, the Republicans, you know, the, the extent that there are some ugly things said, uh, there are some ugly aspects. It's really the authoritarians who, who do that. Um, and the, you know, the Tea Party is diverse. I'm not saying they're authoritarians necessarily, but the people who are frightened by diversity and immigration are especially the authoritarians. And they're not compatible with the business folks. And so we're seeing that split right there. Um, I think conservatives, or rather I should say the Republican Party has traditionally been the party of business. And I think ultimately growth and having a good business climate is essential for having a successful country. Um, so I, I hope there, and there's a lot, and there's a lot of great young conservative writers like Raihan Salam and Ramesh Panuru and um, all these interesting people who write for National Review um, who are not at all racist, who care about the working class, and who want who want growth. Those are you know those are the Republicans that I, I think are really right, um, and uh, I'm hopeful that they will be successful and the Republican Party will split off uh, the elements that are really focused on fighting immigration and maintaining America as a Christian nation. Why it, it's it when you say it like that, it's just so odd to me that the relationship with business lasted so long. I mean, the, the authoritarians were were there. I mean, they weren't. I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe back before the sort, they were in the Democrats. But I mean, they've been there a long time. The the they're the religious right in a in a way as well. So they've been in the Republican Party for many decades. Yes. So a few things have happened. One thing is that the basic coalition. So Reagan, Reagan is the one who really got the formula right for the Republicans. And the reason why the Libertarians vote with the Christian conservatives. Um, who are not necessarily authoritarian. I'm not saying the, the, the Christian right is not necessarily authoritarian, but 
he put the coalition together because they all hate the welfare state. And the welfare state uh, really grew after Johnson. So it was really in the 60s and 70s that the welfare state grew gigantic, even, you know, even more so. And, um, and, you know, there were race riots and the expansion of welfare. And so a lot of it was, you could, you could call it racism. There was a reaction against that. Um, but it's complicated because it is, I think, a, a, a deep concern for proportionality and a hatred of seeing anyone get something for nothing. Um, so the, you get this coalition of people who hate the welfare state for different reasons that lasts a couple decades. But there's so much crony capitalism in this country. Uh, and this is something both Occupy and Tea Party are right about and agree on. Uh, there's so much crony capitalism uh, that what we're seeing now is uh, this populist movement. Some, some call them Jacksonians. Uh, this populist movement on the right is sick and tired of the alliance with business, which seems not to care about the things that they care about, you know, which wants lots of immigration to keep labor costs down. Um, so this is one of the reasons to think that the Reagan coalition is due for a crack up. Uh, they were gigantic fault lines before, and now they're really opening up. Well, I guess, you know, if there's a final question, I mean, we've talked about how polarized people are and how this has to do with emotions and talked about even to the how much the two sides might feel contempt for one another. So now everyone's sticking their finger in the wind and trying to figure out whether we have to go through all this again in just a few months. Um, do you expect that given the intensity of the feelings or do you think that it's just, it was so painful once that you can't really repeat it? Um, so much of what's going on now is not really driven by the, the deep moral psychology of the people it's driven by the internal dynamics of Congress, which I, I don't understand. You'd have to talk to a political scientist. And it's driven by calculations of the part by the party strategists. So I, I can't really predict what's going to happen. Um, uh, what I can say is that the problems in America are much greater among our political elites and in Congress than they are among the people. So I mean, something we need to all remember here is that despite polarization being at an historic high, I mean, it's as bad in Congress, certainly, uh, as it was after the Civil War. It's, it's worse uh, among the people than it has been in memory, but there's no violence. Nobody's gotten killed. And that's really, really good. I mean, this, this could get ugly, um, but you know, so far it's been almost entirely peaceful on, on both sides. Um, so uh, I'm, I think the Republicans will probably not take it to the brink uh, next time as they did this time. They're in a much weaker position. Uh, they know that the demographic uh, trends are against them in the long run. Um, so I think this gigantic failure might be the kind of kick that uh, some reformers need uh, to begin to change the way the Republicans are doing things. Uh, that's my hope, at least. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, Jonathan Haidt, thank you so much for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Fascinating discussion. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Chris. Thank you. That was a really interesting conversation. And I think what struck me the most is how bleak it seems that our political future is. I mean, if we keep identifying ourselves in terms of an in-group and an out-group, us and them, you know, with respect to the political parties, we're doomed. Yeah, that's, you know... The data is clear, the polarization, it's like these two lines going in completely opposite directions when they used to be close to each other and they used to be emerged. I, I, I'll only say that I think that until you understand it, you can't possibly counter it. Uh, and, you know, during the heat of the, the shutdown with all the emotion and then as the debt ceiling approached, I mean, people were so angry at each other and so afraid it was unlikely to happen. So maybe with... Uh, two weeks distant, you know, roughly, 
we can actually calm down and say that they do see the world completely differently. Try to put on those goggles for a second and see what it looks like. You might be, I mean, it's going to be very hard, but you should give it a try. And certainly there seems to be some splintering within the Republican Party, at least, you know, the shutdown fiasco is, has, uh, I just saw a recent, I think it was a Gallup poll that showed the approval rating for Republicans in Congress is lower than ever it's been recorded, um, with even the Koch brothers coming out against the Tea Party strategy. So, you know, maybe we've really hit rock bottom, and there can be some ideological shuffling into the middle. Yeah. And if, if you were a political strategist, which we are not, uh, analyzing the moral differences within the Republican Party would be one way to sort of drive the wedge, which, you know, uh, which I think uh, someone might get out of this interview, not me. Yeah. And I, I mean, I hope the political strategists have learned that, you know, this, they're not, it's not working for them. Yeah, so. Yeah. so that's it for another episode. And thank you for joining us once again on Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. And you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.